0: This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the living room of the Goldman School. Uh, we've got a great panel here today, two fabulous people, to discuss the Pope's encyclical, Laudato Si, and uh, talk about global warming. Uh, talk about what the Pope has put forth. Governor Jennifer Granholm was governor of the state of Michigan for two terms. Uh, in that governorship, she worried a lot about jobs and energy. Uh, she has since then come to the Goldman School and is also at the Berkeley Energy and Climate Institute, uh, where she's doing a project uh, called the American Jobs Project, trying to figure out how to bring green jobs to America. Our other guest is Professor Dan Kamen, who's here at the Goldman School, but also at the Energy and Resources Group, and at the Department of Nuclear Engineering. Uh, He has worked for Hillary Clinton in the State Department. He's advised President Obama, and most importantly, he's advised the Pope on this encyclical and helped write some pieces of the encyclical. Uh, So he has inside knowledge of what went on. So we're going to start with you, Dan. what was the process like? I, I have this image of—I've seen the Da Vinci Code, so I have an image of what went on, but I suspect it wasn't quite like that.
1: Not quite like that, but it was equally out of the blue. Uh, we were given a series of invites that arrived in early 2014 Would we come to the Vatican and meet with the Pope and the Pontifical Academy of Sciences and Social Sciences in a kind of unusual joint session and talked through the various topics related to not just climate change, but environmental destruction, quality of life, equity around the planet. And we knew what the Pope was working on, but didn't know the direction. And so we had a very interesting high-level meeting. About half the panelists were Nobel laureates. We wrote papers in advance, got comments back, presented our papers. There was a mixture of scientists, economists. There were high-level journalists there. And Out of that came a series of documents that we were then asked to review. So it was an intense four days. We had about 30 outside panelists, but it was really the Pope's team in the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. They organized the questions, they made sure that the Monsignors mm-hmm. all provided a lot of feedback and critique, and it's, I really think it's that dialogue that went into the early Was drafting. the
2: Pope actually there?
1: Pope was there for two sessions, wow. a closing session, sort of a more public one, and then a really interesting back and forth. And actually, Sorry, this, the star of the show, I felt, was Walter Monk, an oceanographer from UCSD, who in his 93rd year attended the meetings, um, showed video of a manta ray named after him, and really got everyone sort of jumping literally when he showed videos to the highest level of the Vatican about you know all of God's creatures oh that were being God, represented in so this awesome. session.
0: Well, and in fact, like that's a good segue into... You mentioned there were economists and social scientists there, but this is not a social science document. Uh, There are, of course, discussions of collective goods and a little bit of discussion of uh, even carbon taxes and things like that. But mostly, this is a document that has phrases like the following. The earth, our home, is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth. Doomsday predictions can no longer be met with irony or disdain. We may well be leaving to coming generations debris, desolation, and filth. Or... Finally, clearly the Bible has no place for a tyrannical anthropocentrism, unconcerned for other creatures. So what kind of document was this? Well, I
1: mean, the process I thought was fascinating, because as you say, the range of comments did span basic science, engineering, economics, social science, humanities. But the focus of the process and the dialogue with the Pontifical Academies was really around establishing the baseline. And that's the the story of science. Where is the science of climate change? What is the room for doubters in that process? And after Mm -hmm. all, there was innumerable references back to times when the Vatican was behind the times on science. Uh, Galileo's issue in the trial came up several times a day in terms of when do you know there's enough consensus to move ahead? but also recognizing that science is not a democracy. One naysayer can be right in the end. Climate change is a process where information comes from many fields, and the, the, the Monsignors asked numerous questions about what really is the state of science around biodiversity loss? What do we know about warming of the oceans? And so there was this strong scientific tenor, and I think the document reflects that.
0: So, Governor Granholm, uh, here's another quotation, and I want you to, as a sort of Catholic layperson, elaborate upon why you think this was an important piece of the document. The document says Saint Francis invites us to see nature as a magnificent book in which God speaks to us and grants us a glimpse of his infinite beauty and goodness. So why does that appear in here? how does that relate to the larger topic?
2: This I, I encourage everybody to read this encyclical because it, you know, as a as a person of faith, it just made my soul sore because it blended the recognition that we are, you know, that science is of God too, right? And that this biodiversity, that we are all so dependent on one another and that to destroy God's creation, which is the earth in some way, is, in fact, a sin against God.
1: He says in in the document, this is an affront.
2: It's an affront, of course, because as we all, I mean, in in Genesis, and what's in this, in Genesis, it is said that man is supposed to keep and till the earth. And we've done a lot of tilling, but we haven't done a lot of keeping. And this document really reflects the notion of our responsibility to this creation. The the fact that he calls it, you know, our common home and that he asks us to look in the, you know, generations ahead and not just for this, in, you know, the, in the immediate, which is why he gets into the economy and all of that. It is, a it is um, as somebody described it as, beyond revolutionary, this document.
1: Yeah, I was told it was Vatican 3.0 yeah. <laughs> at some level because it really gets to stewardship, intergenerational, yeah, interspecies equity. In fact, the the Pope really... Highlighted in a session, his choice of Saint Francis right. was specifically around the relationship with nature. I can't. He didn't say directly that you know, he chose that name because he planned to do this, but he really said he thought that we were in a sorry state. The filth term is one of the most quoted from from the uh, from the encyclical, and he talks about the problems. He talks about how. Humans have a responsibility, and it's interesting. The responsibility is equally to the planet overall and and all species great and small, but also to the inequalities that we built within human society with our system of doing business on the planet. And he says that
2: really clearly. I mean, St. Francis was about um, the poor, about peace— and about the earth, the animals, the creatures that God created.
0: How much do you think this is really more a book about ecology than anything else, and sort of ecology meets theology, and an attempt to look at the world as an interdependent system and to really blaze a new trail for thinking about it in that way?
1: Well, I would say it reflects a lot of ecological knowledge and of understanding of the fragility of nature. But to my mind, it's really document mostly about the unintended or the intended consequences of our style of doing business. It, to me, it really is about climate change and how our actions are leading in a very clear causal way to degrading those ecological systems. And that, I, to me, that's the, that's the thread that ties together the different aspects. It's not just about ecology and how beautiful the world is. It's about the very clear connection from our current economy to destroying our home.
0: And, and with that in mind, I, I actually did a word count. I was trying to see, does capitalism appear? doesn't appear once. Socialism appeared not once. Communism does appear, but it appears only to say that communism and Nazism use technology in a bad way to destroy societies and to kill people. So it really comes back to those things. The, the only ism that appears again and again and again is consumerism. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell us about this document?
2: This document is about the planet. It's also about the economy and this notion of rapacious consumption and how we've got to think differently about our role on the planet because that consumption ends up destroying it.
0: But many people would say consumerism is at the heart of capitalism. So to what extent is it an attack indirectly on capitalism?
1: Well, there's been a lot of work in the last two decades that I feel is part of the undertone in the encyclical about this is not the only way to, to generate a better quality of life and better well-being. There are ways where we don't degrade the natural world, our home, which he, that's, that's the most common term he uses to, to talk about the earth, our home. And it's those threads that I think puts this document right at the forefront of what I would call the solution science. It's not just highlighting the problems, it highlights there's another path and steering away from the most obvious isms, the capitalism and things, but but highlighting the consumerism and while we want to have a better quality of life, we want to improve our our state of affairs, our current path is not the way.
0: does it go too far? There's one point at which, and I was really struck by this, there's a critique of air conditioning, of how it's gone too far. I remember a movie once called My Dinner with André, in which André talks all about how you should go out to the wilderness, and the other character, who was Wallace Shawn finally just blurts out, does that mean I can't have an electric blanket anymore? well, Does this mean that I can't have an air conditioner anymore?
1: So I think that's actually the beauty of the document. And this is this solutions path that the Pope is already beginning to speak about in using this as, as he travels. And that is that we do know there are more wasteful and less wasteful ways to do the same thing. If you want a certain amount of energy, there is the burn coal or burn oil, or there's the clean energy path. And they have hugely different impacts on the planet. And that, to my mind, is what the Pope is getting at there. You want the comfort of air conditioning, but there are smart ways to do it that reflect not only nature, but also quality and inequality. And one of the the, the features of our debate um, at the Vatican was very much that our current system isn't just polluting and wasteful, that it's inherently highly inequitable. And there are other paths that treat all human beings more as equal. That's not the path we're on, and that's one of the features that the Pope is really calling out. I want to get to the
0: inequity in a minute, but but first I want to push you a little bit, because here's another quotation. Politics must not be subject to the economy, nor should the economy be subject to the dictates of an efficiency-driven paradigm of technology. Again and again, I got the impression that there was a tremendous undercurrent of critique of technology just as technology— I hear you saying, well, there's actually a different technological route we could take which could help solve these problems. Is there a tension there? Or? Well, you're calling out
1: one of the things that was, that was first critiqued, that the Pope is being anti-science technology. And I don't view it that way at all. I really think that what he's critiquing is waste. And I think what Jennifer said is right, that there are aspects of how we interact with, how we use nature, that just simply don't make sense. And if our time horizon was longer or if our appreciation of our footprint on the planet was more sensitive, we would choose the way to tread more lightly. And that's the version. So I don't view that as anti-technology at all. The push towards clean energy and clean tech is really about growing the economy, getting more and better services without creating filth. And so I view it as pro-innovation, not anti-technology. Yeah, I think
2: that's absolutely right. It is absolutely not anti-technology. It's anti-technology that hurts the planet. And that, you know, God gave us incredible brains and and lots of science. And using the science in the right way, I think, is exactly what this is about.
0: So so let's go to the equity issues, because one of the uh, repeated themes... Uh, in fact, it's sort of encapsulated in the, there's a point at which they talk about the cry of the earth, which, of course, is a central theme, but also the cry of the poor. And that's bracketed with the cry of the earth. Uh, and it talks about the fundamental rights of the poor and the underprivileged. We must eliminate poverty and scandalous consumerism. So that's a repeated theme in the document. Say more about that.
1: Well, that was Probably the biggest debate and discussion we had and the meetings beyond kind of establishing how clear the science is, there were many members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in the room, but it was really that we are creating societies that are massively inequitable, and the way we're doing that makes solving the climate problem even harder. 1.4 billion people don't have access to energy. It's something that was talked about extensively in the meeting. The Pope is already speaking about it in South America uh, right now, and understanding that our use of technology could dramatically make societies more equitable. Kind of universal access to energy resources, education, internet, whatever the resources are, we're doing them in ways right now that are creating divides, and I think this document speaks there's another path.
2: And, and, and just, just to underscore that, I think he is saying very clearly, or you all were advising right, that climate change disproportionately negatively impacts the poor, flat out.
1: That's right. In fact, that's one of the key observations in the fourth Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment, AR4, was the first document that, to my mind, moved beyond just here's the state of the science and solutions you know, are out there. But that there's a huge inequality built in. And it's not just developed countries versus developing countries. It's the poor in industrialized nations. Mm-hmm. They're the first ones to have to use emergency rooms as they respond to heat waves, when disease patterns change. And so it is a global inequality, not just a north south divide. And, and the Pope spoke to that as well. It's spreading
0: to some people. I mean, the, the document says there's always a social mortgage on private property, for example. The principle of the subordination of private property to the universal Destination of goods, and that's the right of everyone to their use, is a golden rule of social conduct. I mean, this sounds like they're taking more than my air conditioner away. They're also taking away private property to some extent.
1: Well, I'd like to think that one of the reads of it is that we know how to use resources in ways that are far more equitable. And if the Pope pushes beyond what current banks are comfortable with, I think he's doing it for a reason. And the reason is that we cannot go down the path where the income levels of the CEOs to the lowest employees in a company is approaching infinity, which is sort of how we're going now. That that that, that that's huge divide. And he's really highlighting that there are other ways to manage our assets, property, income, the planet's resources. All of those fit together, and that was one of the messages that in our workshop you know came up time and time yeah, again. Yeah,
2: I think that he. I mean, he's not he's not against private property. I think what he's saying is that that um, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so we, very advanced industrialized nations, have created a huge amount of this problem because of our vast consumerism. And therefore we bear a greater responsibility in helping to solve that problem. And that might mean we'd have to contribute a little bit more of whatever the abundance we have is to make sure that the earth is healed.
0: And his indication that politics is primary suggests that he sees political solutions for that. It's not just charity. It sounds like he's also saying we've got to go beyond charity to actual political solutions. Well, in
2: fact, I think there's a recognition that charity, while it's very, very important, it's not big enough to be able to resolve the problem. There's not enough giving to be able to even out the inequities and certainly heal the planet.
1: And I think the other feature of it, too, is that he's also highlighting that as much as our science and technology base could solve Great deal of or all of the problem. That's not where the barrier lies There's been a huge amount of work over the last two decades that the real barriers are the political ones the ways that we, we That we manage money the ways that we don't reflect nature in the forefront of our political discussions and this is really a, a call out to if you want us to address this problem don't just wait for the next great solar panel or efficient device this has to be a social and a policy change
2: and but yet he interestingly he um, uh, he sort of wrote off one policy solution which is a carbon market talk about that he
1: did and so that was that, that was one of the things that surprised me because the the group of experts gathered which is not everyone um, but that group spoke very strongly about the need to internalize all the things we talked about. And the current mechanism of internalizing all of these damages to the planet is to put prices on degradation. So not just a price on carbon, but understanding that we could have efficient markets for water and this and that. But I think that the tension in the Vatican, and I'm only speaking from observation because we don't know the debates that happen in the academies, was this got back to that question of equality and inequality. And if 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 you can't manage your markets efficiently, you're going to run into problems. So I think he was speaking to the higher level, hmm. not to the details of how this
0: would be worked do out. Do you think he would have been more favorable towards a direct carbon tax? I mean, is the issue here, because there's a big discussion about the trading of these things, and it can lead uh, to new forms of speculation. And of course, that's one of the criticisms of um, carbon credits. So maybe a carbon tax would be more... Exci- I mean, there's got to be... Otherwise, what mechanisms do we have, is my question. It's hard
1: to... I mean, again, <laughs> we're, we're tea leaf reading a little bit now, yeah. but certainly... Um, In the view of most economists, if one wants to do this most economically efficiently, you would have a carbon price, a carbon tax. The problem is that that implies we would have a global governance, which might work from the Vatican view, but it doesn't work from the players he's chiding. And if you want all the countries to get involved, they're going to have to take it on domestically. So I think he was treading a very careful line here.
0: It does say we need global regulation norms, and it talks about the need for— global institutions, international institutions to help solve some of these problems. It doesn't say how to create them, but it sure talks about them.
1: And that's thankfully a topic where there's lots of interest right now. California has a carbon trading market where Quebec is our partner. And Governor Brown has highlighted a under two degree MOU of which subnationals around the world have been invited to join and a number of them have. U.S. states, states in Mexico, in Asia, in Europe. And it's that level of cooperation which i think that the pope is really encouraging he's highlighting those solutions to be politically based that political base has to come locally it's not going to come from a global vote it's going to come from local referendums and leaders agreeing to work together
0: and another thing that was put off the table is we hear a concern for the protection of nature is also incompatible with the justification of abortion and then also instead of resolving the problems of the poor and thinking of how the world can be different some can only propose a reduction in the birth rate. So that seems to suggest that both abortion and even maybe birth control are off the table. Is that really realistic?
1: So in my perspective, I, I would say that while it's, it's the papal document, he was editorializing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because there's no question that when we talk about the ultimate survivability of the planet, population is going to need to be in that equation. And Population has been a taboo tub, uh, topic in most places, China excluded, but ultimately, resource consumption as the world becomes more and more equitable, where the average citizen in Nicaragua and in South Sudan and in California starts to have a uh, quality of living which is more or less similar. We're gonna to have to talk with us over time. That might not be the topic for 2015, but ultimately that's gonna to have to come up on mm-hmm. a sustainability basis. Doesn't mean that the Catholic Church has to lead that conversation. Yeah,
2: I, I would, you know, I mean, putting on my <laughs> politics hat, I would say the Pope is a really um, quite an adept politician. He knows his, his base too, and this issue is, is one that he has not compromised on, And he and the conservative elements of the Catholic faith, appreciate the fact that he is not compromised on it. Um, but it's it is somewhat interesting that um, there has been this brush of of uh, sort of cafeteria Catholics that have has often been applied to the left because we don't you know often people on the left aren't in favor of you know uh, no birth control not being allowed or no abortion et cetera. But now there's been an element of cafeteria Catholicism on the right who don't like this notion that the Pope is coming out against consumerism or against mm-hmm. uh, climate change. It's very, well, uh, it's very change interesting. Well, that'll change the debate
0: in Catholicism because now it, it, well, each really, side can point fingers at the other on exactly. different issues and stuff. So, yeah. I'm going to hold back and
1: wait for Laudato Si, number two, where this topic gets on, the, on the, in another generation's time.
0: So both of you have operated within the political realm so what's the impact going to be here and specifically on at least two or three different areas first within the catholic church second of all in the u.n climate change conference in paris later this year and finally the presidential election in the united states
2: Well, let me, let me just jump on the Catholic Church, and you, I think, should talk about the uh, agreements in Paris, et cetera. But I would say that, um, you know, there is a raging debate right now within the Catholic community in the U.S., because it had been under Pope Benedict, um, you know, the conservatives had really, um, held sway. And now many progressive Catholics are feeling like, oh my gosh, the Pope has arrived and we have an ally. And so there is just, I think, a lot of the very conservative bishops, which have sort of been pushed aside, um, the debate within the Catholic Church here in the U.S. is, is very real and raging. He'll, he'll be coming here in September. It'll be very interesting to see how the conservatives uh, treat him, because I think that he has opened up this wonderful argument, this wonderful um, push for conservatives to embrace conservation, which is really what conservatives are supposed to be about. Right.
1: And I think that this plays into a number of really interesting uh, debates. Uh, for a long time, the, the climate science stories and what are the elements of the opposition to understanding the climate dynamic where we can pull off groups and there can be an, a more open conversation. And this does it in spades. This really highlights the opportunity for, as you say, conservative Republicans who are also people of faith to see a strong leader Absolutely. highlighting it. That That's going to change the dynamic in some important ways. It also opens up another part of the story as well, and that is that it's trying to highlight this is not anti-religion, this is not anti-faith, this is actually a, a core tenant of Catholic belief as laid out by the Pope. So that also opens a very different conversation, which I think is not gonna only have impacts at the presidential level. This is gonna go right down to district level elections to members of the House and the Senate, because it's gonna play out it's very amazing. locally,
2: very totally differently agree. around the country.
0: Totally agree. And then internationally, it's really important to remember the Catholic Church is important in Latin America, the United States in North America, in Europe, in Africa, and also to some extent in Asia. So the, the church has a worldwide scope, and it's going to make an impact, I would think, on many countries that come to the table in Paris later this year.
1: So I think another feature of that that is that, that, that very, very important here is that while Al Gore's movie Inconvenient Truth was a bellwether event in highlighting the climate story, there wasn't that Kennedy-esque go-to-the-moon speech yet. Incognitive Truth didn't quite sort of mobilize the social base. It highlighted the, uh, the, the, the challenge of climate change. Who knows if we look back and say um, the encyclical was that document, but it's certainly the strongest contender so far to be the place where the broader discussion of our place in nature and our need to change that relation has been put forth in a very eloquent way. And so it is right now the strongest version of this is not just a technical story, it's not just a political one, it's a moral story. And, and that that's really is important. that's
2: exactly right. And that's, the, that's what moves people. Science and numbers and all of that is interesting. Right. Those are tools. But, right. but moving yeah. hearts and yeah. souls, it is the moral argument. And that, I think, is what this yeah. serves.
1: I mean, I agree with Jennifer. I think this opens the door to a conversation. It's much more thoughtful about understanding that there are costs to our way of doing where been doing business today that we need to address. And we need to think about them in a perspective that's not just you know, what's our returns next quarter, what are our returns next generation. And that's what climate change is about. And that's why I think this is really a brilliant, uh, really a tour de force by the Vatican to lay out a moral route mm-hmm. to a sustainable world.
0: An extraordinary new world. My thanks to Governor Jennifer Granholm and my thanks to Professor Dan Kamen. Thank you. Matt.